Welcome to the 98th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore of the Land Stewardship Project. During the past several years, Monsanto's Roundup herbicide has become one of the most popular weed killers in the world. Most of that success is due to the fact that Monsanto has genetically engineered crops, such as corn and soybeans, that resist being killed by Roundup. That means when Roundup-ready crop fields are sprayed with the herbicide, the crops survive, but weeds die. One argument in favor of Roundup is that it's safer for the environment than many other types of herbicides. That's because Roundup's main component is glyphosate, a broad-spectrum herbicide that supposedly dissipates relatively quickly in the environment, reducing its ability to cause long-term problems. But Don Huber has thrown a monkey wrench into this mindset. Huber, a Purdue University Emeritus Professor of Plant Pathology, has recently been creating minor waves in the Corn Belt by highlighting glyphosate's ability to make the growing environment for plants an unhealthy one. In a summary paper of the latest research in this area, Huber documents how glyphosate has significantly changed nutrient availability and plant efficiency for a number of essential plant nutrients. Huber and other researchers are concerned that the soil's ability to produce healthy crops in the long term is being compromised by years of glyphosate use. If this is indeed true, it would turn everything we've been told about the Roundup Ready weed control system on its head. In early 2011, Huber wrote two letters to U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack outlining what he saw as a quote-unquote emergency situation concerning the use of glyphosate on crop fields. In his letters, Huber cites new research he says shows that the herbicides could be linked to not only crop diseases, but health issues in livestock, among other problems. Huber is not opposed to agrochemicals. He simply argues that glyphosate has been a very effective farming tool that has been overused and abused. Increasing its use with the approval of more Roundup-ready crops, like alfalfa, should be treated with great caution, says the scientist. Huber's claims are being roundly denounced by Monsanto and some agricultural scientists. However, he has over five decades of experience as a respected scientist, and the fact remains that in recent years, farmers and researchers have been noticing a mysterious increase in disease problems in fields where glyphosate is being used. On March 24, 2011, Huber spoke before a group of farmers and scientists at a forum in Creighton, Nebraska. Land Stewardship Project staff members Richard Ness and Julia Ehlers Ness recorded the professor's presentation. Beginning with this episode, we are presenting his remarks in a series of five podcasts. In this first installment, Huber provides some background on soil chemistry, plant nutrition, and glyphosate. Need to recognize just off at the start, as farmers, you're running a factory that's really storing energy. You're storing energy from the sun, doing that by using the carbon dioxide in the air and the water, and you're storing that energy as sugar. In order for that factory to work, or in order to store that energy, take some nutrients, some minerals. You look at manganese up here. That's important for splitting that water so that we can have the hydrogen to combine with the, with the carbon dioxide to farm the sugar. Barrett at Cornell has a big picture of a Buddha god, and he labeled it manganese. Then he shows has the rest of the world, or all the population, bowing to that god because he said if it wasn't for manganese, none of us would be here because that's where we get our oxygen for us to breathe is when the manganese is involved in that water-splitting reaction of photosynthesis. It also takes the magnesium in that 
chloroplast or chlorophyll molecule serves as a transition element as it captures that sun's energy and uses that hydrogen then, but it also takes all of the other 14 essential elements in order for that factory to really run efficiently. And it's a matter of balance. Each one of the nutrients is important because they function as part of a very delicately balanced interdependent system of the plant's genetics and the environment. And so if you're out of balance, it's not going to run as efficiently. You can run on a, your pickup on a flat tire for a little while or a low tire. It's not going to be as efficient. Liebig came up with his law of the minimum here, and it's depicted kind of as a, as a barrel, and you can only hold as much as that lowest stake is. You bring that stake up, and then there will be another limiting factor there. But what this doesn't show is that quite often, if you bring one stake up, it'll also help bring some of the other stakes up from a nutritional standpoint. So that it's important that we, that we have all of those working together though, and with a lot of the micronutrients especially, we have hidden hunger. In other words, there aren't real good symptoms of what that deficiency might be, and that's why we tissue test, why we soil test, because we can't always visually distinguish what that symptom might represent. The other thing is that it doesn't, doesn't require us to add all of those nutrients because the plant's going to do a lot of that work for us if it's healthy. If you have a good root system, that plant's going to scavenge for those nutrients. And we find for iron, for instance, that it'll even produce an enzyme that it releases from the root system to make iron that's not available in the soil more available, a reducing action. So that the plant's going to work for us if we'll just give it a chance. And we want it to do all that work that we can, but quite often the roots may be the root of the problem. As a soil-borne pathologist, microbiologist, uh, that's where I spend most of my life. Some people said I've crawled out too often, but uh, it's been fun to, to have that opportunity. When we look at, at nutrient sufficiency, nutrient availability, influences, disease severity. There are really four components that are, are important here. I depicted them as a diamond so that you have the plant up at the top. You've got the abiotic environment or that physical environment over here. Quite often we'll lump the biological and the physical environment and just call it environment, but I've separated them because when you step on an acre of soil, you're stepping on 10, 10 ton of living matter. So that this component is very dynamic. It's not as static as you would see up here. And then, of course, you have the pathogen over here, influences nutrient sufficiency, nutrient uptake, and overall quality of, of our crops as well as productivity. But it's how all four of these components interact that are going to determine whether that plant is nutritionally sufficient and whether you're going to have severe disease or no disease. Quite often with our soil-borne diseases where we don't have chemical controls or genetic resistance, we manipulate these environments. And we can manipulate them so they're less conducive for disease or we'll 
manipulate this component through nutrition, we can make it more resistant or keep that resistance mechanism going, even though the population of the pathogen may not change at all. And we can go from very light disease to very severe disease by understanding how these four components interact. Anytime we change anything in agriculture, we change the relationship of those four components. And then that is going to change what our disease is and what our uh, nutrient sufficiency. So that it's important again to, to recognize that it's not a silver bullet we're working with. We're really working in agriculture as a system. You can't read a novel by just tearing a page out and reading one page and get the plot. Find out who the villain or who the, the hero is. You have to recognize that it's a system that works together. Now we oftentimes focus on one entity and that's because in our particular area that may be the entity that is the lowest in the and lowest stave in the barrel. But we need to recognize that it all works together. Give you an idea of the dynamics on that uh, biological component. This is a field plot that I had in northwestern Indiana. I was looking at the take-all disease, and I spent 50 years working on that internationally as well as here in the States and at Purdue. When I looked at the, my plots at this time, I had little round areas scattered randomly across the plots that or had plants already dead from this disease. You could go down and you could look at the roots, typical black rotted roots, rotted, rotted crown, and yet just a short distance away, wheat was green. Looked at the roots, and yeah, had a lot of root rot, but not enough to kill them. And this, uh, these areas, well, didn't look that way a month before when I'd been up there to look at the plots. And as I looked down, found out that uh, neighbor's dairy cows had gotten out during the winter and had wandered around across the plots. Station superintendent said, didn't think they'd done any damage. And they hadn't from a grazing standpoint, but they'd left a signature every once in a while. And everywhere that they left that signature, down there, had real severe disease because we had a big excess of nutrients and it influenced that soil biological component that influenced manganese availability. Manganese from pH 5.2 to 7.8 is dependent on that, or the plant sufficiency is dependent on those soil organisms in the root zone that determine the valence state of manganese. If it's in the reduced form, it's available for plant uptake. If it's in the oxidized form, the plant can't utilize it. Between those pHs, it's those organisms that are going to determine its availability. Yet beyond that, and then you have the chemistry, the redox interactions come into play. But between those pHs on five or six different soil types that we looked at and gamma irradiated, sterilized them, that you see no change from a pH effect. The pH effect is on those organisms. And so as you go into a higher pH, you stimulate those oxidizing organisms that make manganese less available. We can plate them out, and we just took some uh, soil from underneath there, from the, around the roots, plated it out on a media that 
tells us whether we have those organisms that oxidize manganese and they give us a black colony. If they are reducing, they give us a white colony on this particular media. And as you can see, when we took it under, where we had that real high nutrient, carbon and nitrogen, to feed those organisms and favored the oxidizers over the reducers, you can see that it, it's a population was so high, it just turned the petri plate white or black. And a big change in a very short time and with a fairly simple uh, action there. So that bottom component on the diamond is a very dynamic one, one that can be influenced very easily, and we use that when we're, when we're looking at crop sequence or crop rotation for disease control or for weed control or for nutrition. It really influences all four of those components. Same thing with tillage. And we can look at all of those conditions then that influence the different nutrients. This is one for manganese again, but we can have a table like this for iron or for zinc, for copper, for the other, uh, other nutrients. But in this situation, we have a series of diseases. You have potato scab or rice blast, take all, cornstalk rot, phymatotrichum root rot, verticillium wilt, a number of other diseases that are very dynamically influenced by the, the availability of manganese. And we see that all of those conditions here that increase the availability of manganese decrease the severity of these diseases. And all of those conditions that increase or that decrease the availability of manganese will increase the severity of these diseases. If they do it by, again, modifying the interaction of those com four components on the diamond. We think of NP and K quite often as, as the essential minerals because we anticipate that our soils will provide a lot of the micronutrients. We're seeing that that hidden hunger quite often is a limiting factor for us in our efficient production. And the reason for that is that we don't, quite often don't see really good clear symptoms, at least until it's really into a, a severe stress state. But we need to recognize that the micronutrients especially are the activators and the inhibitors and the regulators are those cofactors for physiologic processes. So if you want to look at it, it's like saying you've got a big diesel engine sitting out in your Steiger or in your uh, tractor. It's sitting over here and can do a tremendous amount of work for you. But it doesn't do anything until you put the key in the ignition and turn it on. These micronutrients really serve as that key to turn those physiologic processes in this factory that you're producing sugar and energy from so that if you take the key out, you turn that physiological practice or process off. Very simple procedure or very simple idea. It's not always as easy to uh, manipulate that. But if we look at that, it's this principle recognizing that cofactor relationship of the micronutrients that gives us almost all of our herbicides, pesticides, and antibiotics because they're all chelators. There are a few exceptions where we do some analoging and, and that for substrate uh, compatibility, but most of them are chelators. Now we use chelators in agriculture, EDTA and 
A lot of the sugars lose uh, citric acid and a lot of those things as chelators to increase solubility of our nutrients or to increase their movement across cell membranes and that. Use them very positively. We also use them because if you have a strong chelator or a specific chelator, you can also turn off a lot of those engines. If you chelate with those micronutrients, you turn the key off or you pull it out of the ignition. And that's a principle, a primary principle that is looked at when we're looking at a nerbicide. Many of those are very specific. So you'll have phenoxyprop used on cereals in the Canadian prairies, on over to Alberta, northern part of, of the United States as an herbicide for cereals. A copper chelator worked on Tordon. Very good specific copper chelator, but it has some specificity for broadleaves. Doesn't do anything to the, to the cereals. You can use it on your pastures. Those enzymes that require copper in the cereals are still able to use it in a chelated relationship. So your cereals, your pasture looks like it's just been fertilized with nitrogen when you use Tordon. But we also put a limit on how much could be used. Uh, initial registration, it was, couldn't be used on more than 20% of the potential acreage because we knew that it took four or five years for it to be fully degraded. We didn't want to have it accumulating. We didn't want to have that impact on, on subsequent crops. And so we had some limitations on how it would be used. Again, its mode of action is essentially to take that key out of the ignition for very specific physiologic processes. And that's what we see with, with other uh, herbicides and pesticides in that relationship. Well, glyphosate is a very strong chelator. The difference between glyphosate and most of our other pesticides, herbicides, is it's a very broad-spectrum chelator. Most of them that we have will target a primary mechanism or primary physiologic pathway so that if you turn it off, the plant dies. With glyphosate, when, you use, when it chelates, and it chelates across the board, it's not a complete chelation or a complete immobilization of all of those nutrients so that you have a primary effect on a secondary metabolism rather than primary. So glyphosate itself doesn't kill the plant. You can't kill a plant with glyphosate in sterile soil. What you do is you shut down the defense mechanism of the plant so it becomes very susceptible then to those soil-borne pathogens that are just waiting for a free lunch. And it's really those organisms, as I'll show you, that are the herbicidal mode of action. But glyphosate's a very strong chelator. Patented in 1964 by Stauffer Chemical Company as a chelator, metal chelator. Very broad spectrum, group of organisms, or group of compounds that were patented with it. Again, they're all very broad chelators, so they'll chelate any positively charged metal ion. Well, that's calcium, magnesium, iron, manganese, cobalt, nickel, zinc. All of those mineral, essential mineral nutrients are all chelated. Different st uh, chelation stability constants for uh, glyphosate with the different nutrients. 
And you'll see that these are in logs so that as you go down here, you, you can see that this would be 100 times greater chelating stability constant for manganese and calcium or magnesium. And you see as you go on down, here's Fe3. You know, you're out here uh, a number of decimal points as far as its affinity for iron. Very strong chelating ability to immobilize that particular nutrient, even more than, than uh, manganese. But it also chelates in the spray tank. Well, what do you have in your water that you're going to protect? That's primarily calcium and magnesium. Might have some iron. But if you chelate it in the tank, it's not going to be able to chelate in the plant and turn those physiologic processes off that you want to increase disease susceptibility for disease control. So that if it chelates in the tank, and you can see that. I have to say it's been a very tremendous tool for us, very excellent weed control. But if you add some zinc or the micronutrients or just have good hard water, chelates in the tank, and it's already chelated, and it can't chelate in the plant then to give you that herbicidal activity that we're looking for. Now, I left this plot because a grad student wanted to see if it was just a delayed reaction. I only left one rep because if you've got a lot of giant uh, ragweed in there, you find out why you really have to have a GPS unit on your combine. That's the only way you'll be able to find it if you've got that kind of weed pressure, and it's not a delayed effect. Uh, it continues right on through. Glyphosate also chelates in the plant. We see that by the flashing symptoms. You've turned off some of those physiologic processes by chelating those nutrients. So that the length of that flashing period is going to be determined by how quickly the plant can recover the nutrients that it's lost physiologically in that chelating process. So if you're on a really rich soil, you may see very little flashing. Deuteronomy Farm, it took seven or eight years before we started seeing flashing. One of the best soils in the, in the state. Up at Penny Purdue on those Kankakee River Valley soils where manganese availability is really short, that flashing period may last eight, eight to ten days because it's dependent on recovering those nutrients. Now the nutrients are still in the tissue, but they're not physiologically available to keep that engine running. It has to be replaced. It also chelates in the soil. That's why they say you put it on the soil and poof and it's gone. Well, as the French Supreme Court ruled it's not gone, made them take the label biodegradability label off of glyphosate because said that's not the case. It's immobilized very quickly, but not necessarily degraded so that it can accumulate for a number of years in many of our soils. Immobilized so that it's not active. And you see that, that it also takes time for it to be immobilized in the plant. I was looking at... Uh, Glyphosate with Roundup Ready beans and thought this would be a, a great opportunity for us to meet the micronutrient needs of a lot of our growers that weren't willing to make a separate trip across the soybean field to meet their manganese deficiency. If they had real severe symptoms, that wasn't a question. We had about five counties up north that we typically recommended three to five pounds of manganese every year because they always got a response. In other areas, it was more dependent on that moisture and 
timing of, of moisture and availability of the manganese that wasn't quite as apparent. So I figured with the Roundup Ready soybeans, we could go in there with a little manganese and with the glyphosate and have a win-win situation for both. We could meet the micronutrient needs and we could also have the herbicide, not have to worry about a second trip across the field. Well, it only took one experiment to show me that it wasn't going to work. And so I spent a lot of time then trying to look at different sources that would be compatible, but also looking at how long do you have to wait after the glyphosate supplied before that free glyphosate in the tissue would chelate with the manganese that I was applying from a foliar application to meet the manganese sufficiency needs of the plant. And what I found, if I put my foliar manganese out four days before the glyphosate at the same time, four days later or that, didn't have any benefit from it. It'd be taken up by the leaf, and then it'd be chelated and immobilized and just sitting there as a piece of gravel, essentially, in those tissues. I had to wait until I was at least eight to ten days after the glyphosate before I, the glyphosate would be sequestered or essentially immobilized in the plant in those root and shoot and vegetative uh, tips, those meristematic tissues, or in your legume nodules. That's where glyphosate accumulates in the plant. And about 80% of it will stay in the plant for the life of the plant. As Heather Mathers at Ohio State has shown that uh, it'll accumulate in perennial plants for eight to 10 years. And just keeps accumulating until finally the plant will uh, succumb from bark cracking or winter kill or frost injury because it's shutting down those defense mechanisms in the plant, even at relatively low levels, it can do that. So that when you put glyphosate on a Roundup Ready alfalfa plant, you're going to have 80% of it you're going to be feeding to your cows. It's going to be there, about 20% of it will move out into the, into the soil through the root exudates, and there it has an effect on that bottom component of your diamond that influences the other relationships from both a nutrient and a disease. Well, in my research at Purdue, again, we found that if we had waited eight or 10 days, we could apply our micronutrient, get normal uptake, and meet those sufficiency needs for the plant. Severson in Minnesota was going out at five-day intervals out here, and he found he had to wait until at least 15 days before he had normal uptake and translocation of that nutrient. On Severson, he didn't see any yield difference because he had a full sufficiency of nutrient and he really didn't need the other added uh, manganese. He was already up here at 100 parts per million, but you can see that he still had that active glyphosate, so he didn't see any response to anything that he added. The other thing, interesting thing was that at 20 days, he only had half the response that he had at 15. And you say, well, is that research fluke? Is that an artifact? Or is that something that's real? And that's real. Because at about 20 days, you'll get enough new growth that you'll have a release from some of that glyphosate that's been accumulating in those growth points. And it's, again, cycling in the plant enough to have an effect on your nutrient sufficiency.
This podcast is dedicated to the memory of the late Terry Gompert, a University of Nebraska Extension educator and longtime sustainable agriculture advocate who brought Professor Huber to Creighton. Sadly, Terry passed away the day after Huber's presentation. For more information on Dr. Huber's work related to glyphosate and Roundup, see www.landstewardshipproject.org. Click on the blog link and search the term Don Huber. That's H-U-B-E-R. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.